Chapter Eighteen of the Fairy of the Snows by Francis J. Finn, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Eighteen: The Growing Troubles of the Murrow Family. Vacation passed quickly, and school reopened in September, with an unusually fine set of girls in the business class, none more promising than Alice Murrow. She and her sister Elsie had, owing to the kindness of the Daltons, spent the vacation among the hills of old Kentucky. They were very much the better, both of them, for the two months of sunshine, good food, and pure air. Alice, whom I had not seen since the unhappy day I scolded her, paid me a visit. She was timid, cordial, but it appeared reserved. Between her and myself I had built a wall of separation, a wall of which blind anger had been the architect. What I could do to tear it down, I did. I tried to explain to Alice how I had been over-harsh, and the girl begged me not to speak of it. She could not, she said, with much earnestness, hold a grudge against one who had been so good to her. I believed her. She meant what she said, but the wall remained. I had lost, it became clear to me, the influence over her I once possessed. For a time, Alice Merrill was easily first in the business class. In the use of the typewriter she was already far advanced, and, as the sister who had charge of that department told me, she could, if she wished, become a speed specialist. After Christmas there was a decided falling off in all her work. She grew listless and took little interest in class matters. Of course, she was still among the leaders. That she could be without effort. More than once I called Alice to account. Gently, indeed, for I had learned my lesson in the school of blundering, and Alice had listened to me respectfully, but unmoved. She tried to explain herself but the wall of reserve, so quickly built, was not so easily broken. It was from Miss Margaret Dalton I learned that Alice had set her heart upon being an actress. She was on the lookout, Miss Dalton informed me, for opportunities to appear in charitable and other amateur entertainments, and scarcely a week passed that she was not out at night two or three times. Again I called Alice to account. She admitted that it was her ambition to become a dancer, nor could my argument against such a step make any impression on her. I urged objections clear enough to myself, but the girl seemed to miss my meaning. She could not see the dangers. Perhaps, I thought, she would not. It was borne upon me that I had said too much on the occasion of her first appearance, the result being that Alice, unconsciously, discounted anything I had to say on that one subject. It remained for me, then, thus doing penance for unguarded words, to commend the whole matter to God. Almost simultaneously with Alice's frequent appearance upon the amateur stage, the old troubles began to revisit the morals. The little children told the story of an impoverished home in their dress, in their shoes, and in their faces. Alice, somehow or other, contrived to dress nicely, but upon her face there came slowly but surely the pallor of poor food and the haggardness of late hours. In February the Daltons and all their charitable friends were once more called upon, Mr. Morrow had stopped work and had indulged in a drunken bout, lasting nearly two weeks. The usual result followed. He was forced to take to his bed. At the instance of Elsie, I paid the wretched man a visit. He was very sick and very remorseful. There was no need for me to reprove him. He brought up the subject of his evil ways himself, and there were tears in his voice. Father, he said, I'll do anything you say to conquer myself. I realize what a shameful life I have been leading and I'd really lose an eye or a hand than go on as I have. But when the impulse comes, I grow as weak as water. Sometimes I feel like killing myself. They'd be better off if I were gone. 
Father, I swear to you that I want to reform. I believe you, Mr. Morrow, and I'm going to study out what can be done. On my road home, I am going to see Dr. Kelly, and I'll get him to give you a thorough examination, after which we'll decide upon what is best to be done. Dr. Kelly made his visit promptly, and with equal promptness reported to me. The psychological moment, he observed, is a very much overworked term nowadays, but much as I dislike it, I must say that is the precise moment you sent me to visit our bibulous friend, Morrow. Have you found out anything? I certainly have, and if you will pardon the repetition, I found it out at the psychological moment. The man, Murrow, is in the first stages of tuberculosis. And saying this, the doctor smiled serenely. Of course, doctor, if you consider the first stage of tuberculosis a merry jest, I have nothing to say. Stow that sarcasm, father. In this case, while not exactly a subject for howling hilarity, it is a matter rather pleasant to contemplate than otherwise. There is a hospital for just such cases one hundred miles from here. Mr. Morrow must go there, and I have little doubt but that in the course of a year or so he will be completely cured. He says he'll do anything you say, and you will say it, if you please, my way. When he goes there, he will be kept clear not only of drink, but of practically all temptation to drink. And there is a young doctor there, a special friend of mine, who will take him in hand and see that everything that can be done will be done. It is possible that Morrow will be well as regards his lungs in six or seven months. But he'll stay there till you say the word. The liquor habit needs a longer treatment in his case, I suspect, than the lung trouble. For the next three or four days, the Daltons, the doctor, the Morrows, and myself were busily engaged in consultation as to ways and means to keep the family on their feet, without the supposed help of the breadwinner, to such effect that what at first looked impossible gradually came to seem entirely feasible. To begin with, Mrs. Morrow will go out to sew in families each day, the getting of the families being a detail which Margaret Dalton would see to personally. The baby will be brought each morning by Elsie to a day nursery and called for by her after school hours. As Mrs. Morrow would be obliged to leave home early and return late in the afternoon, Alice was appointed housekeeper. I readily excused her from class till nine o'clock each morning, and as all the Morrows took their lunch at the school itself, she would be able to attend to these home duties and at the same time keep up with her class. And so it came to pass that Mr. Morrow disappeared from the scene of his many years of inactivity, and the rest of the family entered upon a new order. Mrs. Morrow was a skilled seamstress, and earned twelve dollars a week. It was not a very large sum, but twelve dollars a week received regularly is better than twenty a week coming intermittently. Miss Dalton, moreover, saw to it that the children were provided with shoes and clothes. Elsie, taking after her mother, became the home seamstress, and Alice developed wonderfully in the culinary way. In a word, no longer encumbered by the help of Mr. Morrow, the family were free from want, well-nourished, well-dressed, and it must be frankly stated, loving Mr. Morrow as they all did, they were, nevertheless, happier far for his absence. There were no anxious vigils on Saturday night, no slumbers broken by the fantastic antics of a drunkard. Morrow himself, as his letters showed, was living a healthy outdoor life. An abstemious life, too, was gaining weight and strength, and so, there being nothing to worry about, Mrs. Morrow grew tranquil of face, happy of manner, and recovered some of the youth she had been cut off from prematurely by her husband's dissipations. Gradually the wall of reserve between myself and Alice grew thinner. My influence upon her in the matter of choosing her calling, however, seemed to be nil. 
In vain did I reason with her. My arguments lacked force. Somehow, was it a punishment for my burst of temper, I could not talk to her on the stage question with any satisfaction to myself. Strong as my arguments were in themselves, I realized over and over again that in my presentation to her they were pitifully weak. I remember at that time loaning her The O'Shaughnessy Girls by Rosa Mulholland, a book which should be put in the hands of every stage-struck girl. She read it, liked it, but saw no reason for changing her purpose. In the meantime, Alice was attracting a great deal of attention in amateur circles, as a result of which an elocution academy of no particular standing gave her, in consideration of her great Terpescorian gifts, a scholarship. Her attendance every Saturday at the academy brought her into contact with a number of giddy girls and effeminate boys whose acquaintance, I considered, she would be better without. Also, she was called upon to appear in dancing numbers more frequently than ever. Alice never once invited me to any of the entertainments in which she appeared. Nay, more, I could see she did not want me to come. This fact, in connection with some remarks made by several of my friends upon her work as a dancer, tempted me to suspect that, taking the temper of the time and the stage, Alice was dancing in a manner something wanting in the sweet modesty of her earlier days, and the suspicion was confirmed by various little changes in her dress, carriage, and the way of wearing her hair. The girl was, so it appeared to me, in her silly season, and I, who would do anything to save her, looked on helplessly, and prayed to God that the soul I believed to be so beautiful might not be drawn away by the witchery of trifles. I was signing the quarterly reports one morning, and pausing with sorrow over Alice's. In the first quarter, the letter E, standing for excellent, was credited to all her studies. In the second, G, good, took the place of all but one E. And now for the third quarter, the G's were gone, and the letter M, medium, told the tale of steady decline. I must have another talk with that girl, I soliloquized. She has gone from good to bad, and now she is going from bad to worse. Late nights, frivolous companions, frivolous ideals. Good God, where is it to end? The fairy of the snows, whom I once held, as I thought, in the hollow of my hand, is now going her own way, a way anything but straight and narrow. My reflections were remorseful. I blamed myself for much of Alice's deterioration thinking of which, I fell to imagining such dark episodes in Alice's future that I was obliged to check them as rash judgments. Many a prayer I had said for Alice. As I signed her report, I paused to breathe another. The ink was not dry on the paper when David brought me in the eleven o'clock mail. The address of one letter was in a familiar hand. I opened it and read, Dear Father Carney, the night before last I was taken very sick, and Miss Dalton, on the advice of Dr. Kelly, had me removed to the Good Samaritan Hospital this morning. Is it asking too much of you to come over and see me tomorrow, Wednesday? I am ashamed to ask you, but I do so want to see you, for I am to be operated on Thursday morning, and the operation is serious. Come, Father, if you can. Your unworthy and ungrateful child, Alice Morrow. End of Chapter 18 Recording by Maria Therese